Welcome to our Lead to Succeed podcast, where we share leadership and business growth insights, both from our own experiences and that of our guests. We're the hosts. I'm Rebecca Jenkins, founder of Argen, helping companies to grow by finding, gaining and growing the best clients. And I'm Callum, sharing my perspectives from both being an entrepreneur and working in a variety of different companies. Whether you lead a team or a business, you'll find practical tips, inspirational insights and ideas as we discuss a wide range of leadership topics. So with that, here's today's episode. So welcome. I am very pleased to have Drew Neal with us today. I've got some very interesting statistics to share with you about Drew. Now, Drew is the founder of Solutionary Ventures, and he's helped over 250 companies uh, to grow and scale. And he has had a program for founders, helping over a thousand founders to align their mindset with their purpose and the vision and values that they have for their business. But this is staggering. Drew has had over 1,000 speaking engagements. So that's really impressive. And you must be a a constant speaker. So we're looking forward to hearing about that. And today we're going to be exploring all aspects of culture and business, business growth. And Callum is with joining, is with me today. So Callum, we're going to kick off. Hi everyone, uh, Drew. Maybe we want to hand over to you first if you'd like to give yourself a, a quick intro or elaborate on the intro. So. Yeah, well, thank you guys for having me here today, and excited to uh, to join you and and to talk about culture and leadership and human behavior. I think we're going to have a great conversation. Like ultimately, you know, my reason for being here today is that uh, I'm I have a high core value on growth, and and I think that everyone needs a little bit of uh, support, a little bit of encouragement, and those reminders on, you know, that growing is worth it. And because there's a lot of challenges, a lot of obstacles to overcome for every leader. And the reason podcasting is becoming so popular is we're just getting that nice jolt of like, hey, someone else overcame, somebody else had a challenge, somebody else did something, and, and they followed through, they saw it through. And I'm excited for leaders to grow and to overcome their challenges and find the sweet spot of uh, how, how they're designed and uh, how they have a leadership style and how that really benefits the world around them when they bring products and services and teams to market. And so excited to have our conversation today. Nice, well, welcome on board, Drew. We're looking forward to having a chat with you. And you know, let's, let's jump straight into things because we were having a bit of a chat prior to hitting record. And we started talking about leadership and culture and we've been talking about growth and, and scaling as well. Now I'm quite interested to just jump straight in and get your thoughts on this. And I think, you know, as a company grows and and scales pretty rapidly, it could perhaps become a problem where the kind of culture isn't, you know, as as good as what it perhaps used to be. So when you're working with a customer or a prospect and, you know, they're they're talking about culture with you, what are kind of like, like what do you, what do you focus on straight off the bat with, with culture in terms of what you're looking to prioritize, what you're kind of, what kind of culture you're looking to breed. I'm quite interested to just sort of hear your thoughts um, on that. Well, my first curiosity is how invested to human experience the founder or leader is, right? Because there's a responsibility, I think, that society is demanding today um, from from the workplace, uh, from products they buy, from their employer, if you will, um, that people want dignifying human experience. And so we can no longer just kind of swipe you know, human experience under the rug, so to speak, you know, as long as the profitability reports are coming in, 
um, we, we can't we can't do that anymore. You can't hide undignifying human experience. And so people don't want to be known as a number. They want to know that they're in, they're intrinsically valuable to the outcome of, of the growth of a company. And so I think it's really important to understand what value does the founder have or the executive team on human experience and what do they deem a valuable human exchange and then how can they keep that in mind while growing? The difficulty in scalable companies, oftentimes, especially hyper growth, you know, the the you know the whole you know idea of becoming a unicorn, which is an interesting selection of animals, because uni- unicorns aren't real. You know, uh, I would prefer we talk about reindeer because reindeer actually exist, you know, uh, rather than the unicorn. But um, in this whole like narrative of trying to have hyper growth, um, it oftentimes uh, is not a win for the workforce. It's usually a win for the shareholder. Uh, sometimes it's a win for the founder um, and, and, and usually a win for some user because there's a reason it's growing because people are adopting it. Um, but oftentimes the workforce loses uh, because the growth finds them as a functional object to build on top of or to dispose of. Um, and so I, I think people are just wanting to understand how we can be more mindful of that human experience. And so for me, I think it's really about curiosity on where, where's the value for human experience? And then what is a sustainable way to create a culture and a company that duplicates the, the preferences of the leadership so that people, humans, workforce are onboarded in a way that sets proper expectation. And, and I think really understanding how do we win for the investor, the founder, the user, and the workforce all at the same time is really connected to a cultural intelligence which is really about being self-aware and then architecting culture off that self-awareness. Nice. And I, I think, you know, there's, there's a number of aspects there that you touched upon. And we often talk about things like, you know, acting with emotional intelligence or ensuring that like culture is kind of like maintained as the company grows. And you, you sort of touched on like one practical aspect of that just now, which was, you know, around like the onboarding and ensuring that expectations are set. Um, and, you know, people that are viewed as, as not just the number, they kind of have that human experience. So when a company is going through like a really busy growth period, what are, what do you think of sort of like kind of like some practical ways where the leadership can still ensure that there's still a good culture across across the business? Well, first and foremost, we have to realize that good culture, oftentimes companies grow because of the contagiousness of the vision, the contagiousness of the leadership style. But, you know, as as employees get further and further away from the from the people, the leaders who carry that influence, you'll find that that will diminish. The strength of the culture diminishes. The further people get away from the founder, the further people get away from that lead, you know, that leader that's really carrying things. And so we, that requires companies to be very self-aware of their identity as a company. Their core values actually have to be core values, not just things they figured out with a latte and 10 minutes with a, an Etch-a-Sketch, you know what I mean? Um, no, these actually have to be things that govern human behavior. Um, and we have to really believe and have a vested interest in the type of culture we want to build. And then it has to be documented and trained upon. And I think when companies are intentional about their culture and they've architected an intentional culture, they have to have really, really good onboarding and um, sustainable um, integrative uh, approaches towards uh, new hires and employees that are coming in raging fast, right? You know, because grow, 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 grow. We need to add, you know, a thousand people to the team in the next 12 months. It's like, well, 
it's no longer, I don't believe it's, it's, it's a fit just because someone has technical expertise. And when you start to become intentional about cultures, not just do you know how to do something, it needs to be, do you know how to do this and behave in a way that's sustainable from a human experience standpoint, which is unique to the culture. Um, you know, Facebook, they were, you know, they had a, a, one of their high core values in their, in their early growth was move fast. You need to move fast. And so behind that, they were willing to forgive mistakes. They were willing to create a lot more room for people to bend things till they break and not have repercussions on people who made mistakes because they believed that moving fast was better than moving safe. And so, you know, by instilling core values, that turns into human experience. And so I think when employees come on board and hypergrowth scenarios, they need to know the rules of engagement, so creating clarity creating cross-training, taking the time to onboard them, even though you might get slower results in the front end of those first three months of really trying to get them integrated with the culture. Um, there's really interesting research on how people are quick, excuse me, to adapt or not to adapt. And so finding these windows where we can really double down in the, in the, in the adaptive, adoptive period of a new uh, new employee, I think it's important to take our time and to be meticulous about that so that we can find out as soon as possible whether or not our instincts about this person, the data on this person that says that they're a fit actually is true or not true and make that decision and move on. Drew, very often when you're starting this process of cultural development, you're working with founders and directors and senior executives and we know culture starts with them you've you've mentioned that so what do you do when you find that they haven't got the mindset and they haven't got that sort of human value perspective that's going to create an amazing culture so have you experienced that and when you have experienced it what do you do yeah, that's a great question. And it really poses a massive challenge for the leader. Uh, usually, if I'm showing up in a situation where the leader is requesting, you know, to go through some discovery with me to measure where their culture's at, it's because they're getting feedback from their uh, from the workforce that the culture is chaotic, it's it's controlling, it's reactive and fearful. It's maybe it's egotistical or hypocritical. There's, there's ongoing experiences that people are saying, hey, this is not a place we want to be anymore. And so the, usually the leader's getting confronted, you know, if it's true that the leader is not aware of their impact on the culture, at that point, they're getting confronted, right? And so at that point, the leader has to make a decision uh, about if they're going to accept responsibility for the culture that is getting created and really there's, in, in those situations, there's, there's really just a lack of understanding of the value of how culture is such an important ingredient to sustainable growth. And, you know, and so, you know, in those scenarios, maybe the, the drive of the founder to work exorbitant amount of hours and just to drive people through to the finish line uh, has created a moment of, you know, visibility or they've sold a bunch of units or, you know, they've gone to market and had some type of burst short-term success in the sense of volume or revenue or visibility or attention. And, and yet it's not sustainable because they've, they've hit this peak and they're coming off the peak as quick, quickly as they got it. 
because they didn't know how to create human experience and buy-in uh, from, uh, from a meaning point of view um, with the workforce. And so, you know, what has to happen immediately in that moment is, is really the founder has to count the cost or the, the critical leader has to count the cost of what it's going to take for them to become more personally aware of the experience they offer people and then how their preferences in their leadership style and their core values, how that that really impacts the sustainability of them leading an experience. And so I've found many leaders are in good companies. Oftentimes, frustrated leaders are in good companies with a decent culture, but the culture is so different than how they would prefer to lead that it feels like a limitation for them in that situation. Mm -hmm. um, or you'll find that the leader has a chaotic culture and they are leading a culture that looks like them. It just looks like they're chaos rather than something that's you know, beneficial for everybody. And so ultimately what we need is alignment between leadership and culture. And we need an intentionality behind both of those things that then allows them to be aligned and to be unified. And ultimately I see companies like a human. They perform just like a human. They have tendencies, they have traits, they have you know, preferences, uh, they have different patterns that are predictable and yet it's unique to who they are. And, and so we got to become intentional about those things. And so this is really an invitation oftentimes for the leader to choose to do some, own, some of their own personal work at becoming more self-aware, understanding the responsibility they have and understanding how who they are as a leader changes uh, the outcome in their company. And that, that can be a, a big decision for them to make. And sometimes they don't want to do it. Sometimes they do. Um, but it really, it, there's a lot of honesty needed in that moment, right? For authenticity to be possible. Yeah, and to face into it and then go on a journey of transition, which I I can imagine isn't um, the easiest one to uh, undertake, but it's a transition of personal development as well, would you say? It is, and the hardest thing for the leader in that moment maybe isn't even just being honest with themselves. It's realizing the amount of time it's going to take to yeah. get the things that are missing built and integrated into who they are which oftentimes, you know, at this crisis point, you'll find changes in leadership uh, where, you know, for, for things to be sustainable long-term, there needs to be weight on someone else's leadership so that that founder or that leader can either have room to go discover and then reemerge or go on and do the next thing. And so it's, it's, it's very interesting when people get into these critical blind spots of hyper growth and chaos at the same time, uh, usually it just kind of falls apart. And, and what do you think that time frame is? I know it will be different for every person, but what's the longest transition or, or change to a more empathetic um, leader and alignment to uh, a culture that's, you know, having that alignment between leadership and culture when people have had to make that change? What's the longest time that you've seen that take? Yeah, well, I think in general, there's, there's a need for a feedback uh, season of time that is anywhere from three to six months where people are doing deep work on understanding how people have experienced them in their personal world and in their professional world. Um, oftentimes, you know, we've tried to, you know, separate the, the individual, the human from the business, and we're just becoming too intelligent. Uh, there's too much data today available for us on humans and realizing how human preference and human design impacts performance in the workplace with other humans. And so we, we have to do personal work uh, because the personal work 
impacts the corporate work. And so, you know, and so it's it's one thing to generate data. You know, the leader needs to generate experienced data, you know, understand how people have experienced them in crisis, how they've experienced them in, excuse me, in uh, difficulty, experience them in their decision-making process, experiencing them and how they empower people. And then, then they have to go through a season, you know, this, this three to six months includes getting the data, but then also having to rectify whether or not you agree, because you may not agree, even though it may be true, or it may just take a, you know, a little bit of time to kind of sit with what's true and, and understand if you're willing to make the adjustments to modify your behavior for the sake of, of building connection and partnership with others. And so, and so this process is, is very invasive uh, for the leader when it, they come to these you know, chaotic moments of, hey, I, I, I have money, I have a growing company, we've sold a bunch of products, and yet everyone's quitting on me. Everyone doesn't want to, you know, there's, there's a remarkable discrepancy between you know, who I say that I am and the experience that I offer the people. So, um, but that, that's just, you know, that's the part where we, they become problem aware and they decide to decide, you know, on their truth behind it. And then of course, then there's the imp implementation stage, you know, which is going to be, you know, probably, you know, six months to a year, depending on how aggressive they are after this discovery, where they can really design, you know, the life that they want to live, the leadership style they want to have. And, and then, you know, then it'll take time to really build off of that. And so there's really a three-step process I see there, discovery of what is true, um, and then designing, you know, to, you know, meet the needs, and then really building the momentum off of that. And so humans don't grow fast, we grow slow. And that's the challenge with hyper growth is that technology builds faster than humans can assimilate. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it, we're, so we're trying to rectify this relationship between hyper growth that technology affords us through systems, process, automation, and then understanding how a dignifying human experience can be supported at the same time. Uh, I really love the analogy that you, you gave just now about you're a founder and everything seems to be going so well for you. You're growing, people are buying your products, but you've got the other end of the scale and people are not with you as or as enthusiastic as they were or they're leaving or they're you're hearing these rumors around the place and um about leadership and that's going to be a tricky place to be it's a real dichotomy isn't it and I guess as you said not everybody will will take that that journey what do you suggest Drew individuals should do who are working in a business um maybe they're not quite managers yet, not well, no, everybody has the potential to be a leader, but they don't have the status of manager yet. And they are facing a very uncomfortable culture or a leader that they consider not empathetic, not leading with emotional intelligence, um, maybe quite abrasive, they're not enjoying work. How how would you suggest that they might tackle that situation? Yeah, well, I think we have to measure, right? So obviously when you have confrontation with other humans, our emotions uh, have to be processed and we have to understand which emotions, um, emotions are energy, right? It's energy in motion, emotion. And so when we feel emotions, we need an outlet for them. 
and we either need to build off of them or we need to process them, get rid of them <laughs> because they're not critical to what is true, right? So it's, um, but we got to understand how to process them correctly. And so the first thing we do is we have to measure um, what of our emotions are true, what of them are connected to other worldviews that we have or other negative experiences that could be tainting or coloring or giving us a bias in our situation. And, and I think we really got, I, I think there's five places that we need to measure. And these are kind of five discoveries that I would encourage anybody to go through, whether they're the leader or they're uh, on the team and, and, and still direct reporting and, and don't have a leadership status. Um, you know, first and foremost, how authentic, you know, can I be? Do I have permission to be myself here? And am I embraced on this team? And, and is the company true to itself? You know, we, we got to understand how, you know, many companies are inauthentic or they're, or they're hypocritical for another word. Um, and so they say one thing, but they do another. Um, maybe they have a political culture, right? Which means we're saying one thing, but we're driving a secondary agenda. That's actually more important to them than the primary words or commitments that are being used. And so we, ha we have to, first and foremost, number one, measure authenticity. Number two, then we got to understand trust. Right. And, and trust is, you know, do I trust this leader? You know, would I follow them or do my employees trust me? Will they follow me? And a really important piece here is feedback. You know, we can really measure the culture of trust according to how much feedback is it being exchanged on a two way street between leaders and subordinates. Right. And so is the leader willing to in front of a team take feedback from a team member? You know, is a team member willing to take feedback directly from the leader? in a team meeting. It's very easy to give feedback in a one-on-one, -on -one, but you know you have a trusting culture when people are able to do that at the table when more than one person is there. And so number two would be trust. Number three would be purpose. Then we got to measure purpose. And we measure this through uh, the concept of meaningful work. How many of, how many of the people on our team or you know, how many of, uh, of the people filling the executive leadership are here because they believe in a greater meaning. What's the why of this company? How is the world going to be slightly better, um, excuse me, because of this product or service existing? We got to understand we're not just trying to drive revenue for shareholders. Uh, we're trying to actually make someone's life a little bit better. We're trying to solve a problem uh, that has meaning. And so measuring how purposeful um, is, is this product or service? And, and what's the value on meaningful work in the team? So that'd be number three. Number four would just be, what's the impact? Do we have results, right? Do we have integrative wisdom? I think is, the, is what we need to understand. Are we willing to process with our users, process with our clients, process with our customers, and how we can really drive impact, meaning that our product or our service is delivering those, the results that we truly say that it has. And then number five would just be sustainability. Um, are we willing to make adjustments in our process, not only just for the benefit of the user, although that should be first and foremost, the next question is, are we capable of sustainably producing this experience? And how do we make modifications in our culture and our processes and our leadership so that we can sustainably bring this type of impact to the market for years and years to come? And so I think we need to measure those five areas, authenticity, trust, purpose, impact, and sustainability, and then really understand if we're in a negative situation, what are our options? And are the options performing at a higher level in these five areas, and then make decisions accordingly? Thanks, Sue. Thanks for sharing that.
Andrew. And I, I guess uh, I think there's quite a nice segue into, into what I would like to ask you next is because one of the things you've, you've touched upon here is, um, you know, becoming a better leader doesn't doesn't happen by accident. It, it happens by intention. So I guess my sort of question is kind of like two parts is one would love if you could just kind of elaborate on that a little bit more. And how do you think as a leader, if you're in a leadership position or, you know, whether you're aspiring to be one, how can you sort of start to be a bit more intentional about your leadership and how you're working with your team and your colleagues? Yeah, and I would go back to that feedback, you know, component. Uh, this is not an easy thing to do, especially in political environments um, and, uh, you know, in a cutthroat environment where everyone's vying for your position. It's very difficult to be authentic and transparent uh, or open to growth opportunities, uh, especially from your subordinates. Uh, but I think it's critical. I think for to have a to have a real connection, human to human, everyone has to know that they're able to speak about the experience you give them and let them know about it. Both, you know, praise and also you know critical adjustments that need to be uh, to be had. And so I think fostering a culture of feedback. Uh, my mentor, he taught me that you know. Uh, in 2010, I took on uh, a tremendous coach in my life and, and, he, and he taught me about a culture of feedback and how to understand how to process feedback as well as how to give it in a way that can be received and that truth can be found in the midst of it. Because even when I give feedback, there's always going to be a sense of bias in the feedback I would give somebody because I'm you know, processing them through my own lens, my own experience, um, but there, there's always a level of truth inside of it. And so feedback is always an opportunity to grow. Even if only 5% of what someone shares is true or resonates, it's an opportunity for me to make adjustments and to create better experience for other people or not make any adjustment and understand that a sacrifice is coming in that, in that connection with that individual. And so we're really, through feedback, we're really able to negotiate the ratio of sacrifice and reward. Meaning this is the sacrifice of making adjustments for our connection worth the reward of making adjustments for our connection. And so when we're able to really exchange feedback, we build trust. When we build trust and make room for one another, we can drive higher results. And so we're always negotiating or managing that expectation and feedback really allows us to do that in a very authentic and human way. And so I think the most courageous thing we can do as leaders is be willing to let other people speak into how they're experiencing us and us be able to foster a culture where we can do that back and have that exchange. And I think this would wildly transform our leadership environments. And there's a, there's a few key things you mentioned that drew around trust, human experience, feedback, you know, things aren't working, being able to have uh, an environment where you can share that kind of upwards and downwards between, between your team. And I think that's quite a nice segue into something we touched on briefly earlier on was around emotional intelligence. Now, I'm, re I'm really quite curious to kind of hear your thoughts around that, you know, the, the importance of emotional intelligence and how people can best deploy that within, within their team. So a bit of a broad question, but I'm, I'm, I'm really curious to kind of hear your thoughts on, on, on that sort of piece. Yeah, well, I think emotional intelligence 101 is, is self-awareness and people have to become self-aware. Not, and we're not saying self-absorbed, right? We're not saying to become selfish or uh, self-absorbed. We're saying you have to be aware of your tendencies. You have to be aware of how you prefer to behave. You have to realize uh, the, the environment and the experience you create for people 
And to me, you only get that through feedback. And you know, you can get feedback from humans and you can get feedback from assessments. Those are usually the two ways that people give feedback. Um, and you may ask for that feedback or you may just get it and you didn't ask for it. Meaning people are like, they tell you no, they quit you, they fire you, they sometimes feedback comes in those forms and those are hard adjustments to make or harsh ways to receive the feedback, but humans will give you feedback. Um, these development you know, experiences, mentorship groups, uh, you know, personal development opportunities, these are also great mechanisms to get feedback because you can process through different behavioral types and understand while these are not one size fits all, um, nor do we also like just to put simple labels on I'm this and not that. Uh, it does help us to begin to create language around how we prefer to behave in particular environments and particular scenarios of pressure, pressure, stress, innovation, creativity, collaboration. And so we have to become aware of ourselves. And, and that, that is the foundation. You know, Self-awareness leads to self-governance. Self-governance leads to social awareness. Social awareness leads to social governance. And so when we begin to open up these consecutive steps, our emotional intelligence increases the more we're capable of accepting responsibility for each of those segments. You know, you might have someone who is self-aware, but they have no self-governance, meaning they know that they're a terrible person to work with, but they don't make adjustments. And, you know, that's, that's a hard person to work with. That's not a leader because even though they may have taken responsibility to become aware, they're not making, you know, uh, adjustments uh, and being responsible in their self-governance. And so, you know, the idea of I'm responsible for me, you know, the first person you should lead and be successful in leading is yourself, right? And so what does it look like for me to make those decisions, make those commitments, invest into myself um, so that I can grow? I think that's a critical part of, of what is evolving right now. And of course, when you are self-aware, let's talk, take it back to the team now. Let's say the leader has become self-aware. Once they are self-aware, now they can begin to understand the different types of people that they're leading and how those different types of people react to their preferred style of leadership, which now creates a higher level of negotiation uh, from the leader to be able to bring these different types of people into trust, to bring them into, you know, for example, I'm certified in DISC, and, uh, which is a, a classic you know, a behavioral preference um, assessment tool. And I'm a high D in that profile. And one of the communication styles of the high D is that they speak one way. They prefer to speak one way. So they speak with authority, they have a strong opinion, and they think they're right no matter what. And so oftentimes they'll speak one way. There's another type of personality in DISC that is called the S, and uh, which is the steady uh, prototype. And they, they also communicate one way, but they communicate through listening. And so they're usually subject matter experts and have a strong opinion. They usually champion something very specific and niche. And they have opinions about what the D personality or the dominant personality is talking about, but they won't communicate unless they're asked. And so Ds, when they're around Ss, have to understand that they need to ask the S for their opinion. When they ask, they'll get it. And they're going to need that opinion to eliminate blind spots and to forecast pitfalls. And, and, you know, and so the S is also going to have to understand how to initiate their own opinions when they're around a D. They're going to be more likely to shrink back, not give their opinion. And of course, the, then the team really gets hurt because we need that subject matter expert to speak up. So D's got to ask S's to be involved. S's got to take more initiative to communicate. 
And so when you're personally aware as a D and you understand how S's behave as a leader, you can invite them into that experience, which will increase trust and increase the capacity of the team as a whole. Thank you very much, Drew. That is all very, very clear. I love the six steps that you took us through earlier on. And uh, using disk profiling is a good way to have that, that understanding. Or there are lots of different profilings that you can do out there, but it's always a good way for a team to get together isn't it? and understand each other's leadership styles and preferences. I'd like to ask you, Drew, how you came to do this work and your experience. So have you faced challenges working in different environments, which made you think that one of your goals has to be to help companies improve their culture? How did you come to, to, to work in this area? Yeah, well, if I could share a personal story uh, from when I was younger, it really came out of this uh, negative experience I had. I, I, I went to a new school my freshman year of high school and I was uh, mercilessly bullied and um, had some very, uh, very, very trying experiences there. I was, uh, you know, I was jumped and, and uh, beaten, knocked unconscious. I was chased home uh, from groups of 10 people. I was found in corners of the, the gym locker room. And, and uh, I mean, as everything you could think of, every word that you'd be accused of, whatever the cultural leverage was at the time for the thing you don't want to be that's what I was mm -hmm. and um and so um it was a terrible experience and uh you know so much one at one point I had to have reconstructive surgery on my face uh, I was it was it was it was a lot of physical violence attached to it and um and so that was a very difficult experience and I had to ask the question why don't I fit and, and at first I thought that I was a problem. And I, you know, and, and so then I, I moved high schools my junior year and I got a fresh start and I did better um, in a new environment than I did my freshman year. Um, but I began to, you know, this journey really opened up this whole concept of understanding how people, how they relate. And, and it really showed up. I, I actually went and got certified as a counselor um, out of high school. And I thought I was going to go be a psychologist and uh, and really bring value in that in that way. Um, after I did, you know, a few thousand hours of time sitting in in the chair listening to other people, I realized that was going to drive me crazy if I stayed there um, because I needed to go build things. I needed to be out and about. But you know, taking the time to learn human skill really allowed me to understand the pitfalls or the or really the blind spots that people have in their perception of others that eliminates the opportunity for collaboration, for assimilation and for connection. And so, uh, you know, I, I end up, uh, my family has a, a rich tradition working in nonprofit space, um, internationally in humanitarian work. And so I was able to travel internationally quite a bit and see other cultures as well and understand even really how my own American mindsets had limitations and didn't really translate to the patterns and our preferences in other nations. And so I had to figure out how to translate my value into other cultures and understand how to bring value and how to understand those cultures and serve it rather than kind of showing up with all of my mass assumptions. So that really those two variables of working in other countries and, uh, and then having this own experience I had to overcome really shaped a mindset to understand more than money, more than handouts, more than resources, more than, uh, you know, crisis, uh, you know, situations, uh, people, they, they want to, they want to belong. 
They want to be a part of something bigger than themselves. And understanding how to train up leaders who can foster those environments, I realized would really change the marketplace. And, uh, and as emotional intelligence, social intelligence has created this demand on the marketplace, I've seen it as a real opportunity uh, to bring my skill set into this arena and hopefully serve companies that want to bring a human dignifying experience to everyone involved. And that's a, a phenomenal mission and goal. And I know you're doing this already in helping businesses. That experience as uh, a young child obviously had a, a big impact on you. And as we come to wrap up and kind of hand over to you and say what you'd like to share with our audience or how they can get in touch with you or any projects that you're working on, I'd just like to ask one quick and final question, Drew. You had that experience as you were growing up and then you visited different countries. Was there a defining moment as you were exploring those other countries and getting involved in other cultures that really helped you to appreciate why this was so important to you as a piece of work? Yeah, well, I think, you know, there's, being an American, there's there's a lot of privilege that comes with that, right? Um, I, I didn't choose to be an American. Um, I was born here, right? I, I, I wasn't involved. <laughs> um, some other people were involved, I was not. And, um, and so I, I think we really have to understand how you know, this comes back to that human design piece, right? We are given um, a, a, a blueprint, right? It's in our DNA, it's in our genes, it's in our chromosomes. We're given a blueprint and I call that our nature. And then we have life experiences that shape that and create unique custom takes on these types of profiles. And I call that the nurture. And so every human is in negotiation with themselves between their nature and their nurture. And trying to find, find out how they translate to the world around them, considering the unique mix that they have from these two um, different um, spe spectrums, if you will. Excuse me. And so the opportunities that I had, really, I don't know that there's a defining moment, but I would say consecutive moments that I had were the moments where I began to realize that I could make room for other people to influence my life and to learn from them in a way that was beneficial and, uh, and, and grow from things that I didn't understand. Mm -hmm. I think most often people fear what they don't understand and they disengage, they run away from that opportunity, which going back to the leader that needs to grow moment, you know, people don't understand themselves. And so if the tendency is to fear what you don't understand, people will run away from themselves and create you know, these alternative versions as a leader, alternative versions as a spouse, alternative versions as a friend, because they don't know how to reconcile who they are and the ex you know with the experiences they've had. Because oftentimes, obviously, experiences are painful, they're difficult. We have to overcome. We've been rejected, we've been shamed, we've been betrayed, we've been you know violated, we've been ignored, we've been um, suppressed or oppressed. And so there's all these experiences that we're all having to overcome. And what I began to realize is that I had an opportunity to negotiate myself, you know, especially working in humanitarian work. Oftentimes, Americans are, are very engaged in humanitarian work, um, you know, stereotypically. And so, but the negative in some of these experiences historically has been that Americans have just brought their agenda. They've just brought their money. They've brought their agenda and said, well, if you can behave like us, 
then you'll be successful. And what it really began to do was really pull out the heartbeat of their culture in these places. And people began to just um, modify their culture for the sake of the handout or for the sake of the opportunity to get funded or, or to get you know, something handed to them. And, uh, and so I began to realize that we need people to be true. We need people to be authentic. And the world's going to be better because of the uniqueness of everyone's culture. And so how can I take my position of power, my position of authority in the global culture and get behind people rather than try to tell people to come be like me? And, and I found that that experience was much more empowering, much more sustainable, and, uh, and, and much more profitable in the end for those nations. And, and so now, you know, I've actually gotten to work in 20 countries around the world, actually as a consultant. And I've sat with prime ministers. I've sat with uh, secretaries of education, cabinet members, attorney generals. And I've been, I've been able to help broker the relationship between, you know, funds and high volumes of money investors and, and those types of things, um, and the needs of people and the needs of the government and kind of sit in the middle of that and help bring solutions that can impact nations and bring them together, you know, for, for a change, it would be positive. And so, um, and so I, I think understanding how to translate myself to get behind people rather than have to get all the credit in front of people was a real shift for me. And, uh, and a rewarding one. And it's one that I'll give the rest of my life's work to is brokering that relationship. Uh, thank you for sharing that, Drew. It's really interesting to hear uh, kind of how exciting your, your work has been across a number of different countries and how that has shaped your you know, perspective on, on leadership and combined with that very personal story that you shared with us just, just now. So thank you for, for sharing that. Um, and as we draw things to a close, we've touched on a number of different, you know, quite, quite varied topics there, which I think has been really interesting from emotional intelligence, having a human-centered experience, leadership in a high, in a high growth and rapidly scaling organization. Um, is there any, do you have, what sort of closing thoughts would you like to share with our audience, either you know, on those topics or perhaps somewhere that we haven't uh, discussed yet, just to sort of tie things to, together? Well, I think the exciting opportunity is, you know, for companies that are on their way, who have been intentional, uh, you know, if you have a, a healthy culture now, but you know growth is coming, these are actually the people who are in the best case scenario to do more development. You know, oftentimes people show up in crisis, like, oh, well, we need to start to work on our culture because we're in chaos. And oftentimes there's not a lot to salvage in those situations. And so, you know, for the leader out there that's been, you know, consistent to do the work, to grow, to develop, my encouragement to you would be to double down on your path, do more work, invest more, that's actually what's gotten you to where you are. And, and so, you know, in the same way we make massive investments into technology, we make massive investments into partnerships, we make massive investments into market acquisition, make the same amount of investment into your people. And that's what's gotten you here. It's what's going to continue to get you there. And, and I, I'd be excited to discover how I can bring value to companies that are wanting to be intentional about the human experience that, uh, you know, and, and, and build a thriving culture that will go grow people and profitability at the same time. You know, there's a little bit of a, of a narrative that says, hey, if we prioritize people, we'll lose profitability. And I would propose to you today that that is the new competitive edge in the market is that people want to do business with growing companies that are also dignifying humans with value. And which means we now need to grow people, I believe, to be competitive in the market. 
And, uh, and so I think it's a worthy journey and that would be my encouragement. I 100% agree with you, Drew. Um, very, very well and succinctly put. So thank you. Thank you very much for that. It is great work that you are doing. Best for people to get in touch with you is through which, which website or which means? Yeah, drewneal.com. You can go there and get a lot of information. You know, really a great way for us to get introduced is uh, through uh, my public speaking or through workshops and you can get information on that. Uh, there's also an opportunity just to book a free uh, 30-minute discovery call. You know, if you're an organization who's in transition or you're growing and you're trying to understand how to anticipate, um, you know, your needs culturally, I'd, I'd be willing to sit down and, and discover with you if there's a place of value I can offer. And uh, drewneal.com is, is a great way to do that. And you can get links to some of the other things that I'm doing and uh, as well there and get a little more information on some other opportunities as well. Uh, but drewneal.com is the right place to go. Thank you very much indeed for sharing your time, your experience and your knowledge with us, Drew. Very much appreciated. Thank you. Second yeah, from me, Drew. Oh, sorry, Drew. Just going to say a big thank you from, from my side too, but um, over to you for <laughs> closing remarks. Yeah, well, I was just going to say thank you to you both. Yeah, Rebecca and Cal, it's been great to be on here today. And, um, you know, and, and Cal, obviously, we uh, we spoke off air. You know, I have a son named Callum and and your name is Callum. And I think that was, that's just kind of fun. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a big family jamboree here today on the podcast. <laughs> it is. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our podcast. And as always, if you enjoyed it, we welcome a review. And if you have any questions and like to get in touch with us, you can do that at the rjen.co.uk website.